Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 185. Today is May 9th, 2016. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. In today's episode, I want to update you on a trade that I made today. We'll talk a little bit about oil and, of course, China, because those two things, in my opinion, are really what continues to dominate all the markets, including the United States market. I want to comment on this market trading in a range with a great deal of volatility within specific sectors and how that may be related to a couple things that happened earlier in the year. And then finally, I want to finish up with my tinfoil hat conspiracy on what's going on with Donald Trump and how that's likely to affect the markets this year. So let's get down to business. Today, right at the close of the markets, I made two trades. These were both in exchange-traded funds that focused on international markets, and those markets were Switzerland and Vietnam. So the ticker symbol for the Swiss ETF was EWL, that's Echo Whiskey Lima. And for the Vietnam ETF, it was VNM, that's Victor November Mike. Incidentally, I did send out a blog post over at investablewealth.com to notify people that I did make these trades. Now, let me tell you a little bit about why I made these moves into Switzerland and Vietnam. Right now, our markets continue to trade just sideways in a fairly tight range. I'll talk a little bit more about that as, as we go on here in the, in the episode. But I continue to avoid the U.S. market because I'm afraid that although we could continue to trade in a range much like we did the first half of last year, this year is much more volatile. And I think that if that trading in the range fails, then the U.S. market is much more likely to break down rather than to, to break up and out. Now, I have that same fear about much of the international markets as well, particularly the emerging markets and the oil and commodity exporting markets. I think that that is 100% correlated and tied to the price of oil. I'm skeptical that we're going to see oil stay in this, you know, $45, $43 a barrel range with the global glut that continues. And so I think those economies are not going to fare well. But I do think that there are some pockets of international markets that are fairly valued and are less tied to a lot of the volatility that we're seeing uh, driving the fluctuations because of the price of oil and because of this slowdown in China. And the markets I've been looking at and, and have liked the most have been Ireland, the Philippines, Switzerland, and Vietnam. These markets give some diversification because obviously Switzerland and Ireland are in the European sector, and then the Philippines and Vietnam are in Asia. So we're getting some diversification that way from just a, a global geopolitical standpoint. And then none of these four countries that I just mentioned are really tied into lockstep with the dominant economies in their geographic regions. So for example, the Philippines and Vietnam, while both are in Asia, and they obviously have ties to the two biggest economies over there, China and Japan, in my opinion, they do have less direct linkage, both in terms of imports, exports, and competition than, say, maybe South Korea or Taiwan would have. I also like overall business trends, demographics that I think favor the Philippines and Vietnam, again, over a, a country like Japan or a country like China. And then for similar reasons with Ireland and Switzerland, although they're both in the European region, they are much less likely to be tied with the euro and what's going on in Europe than, say, France or Germany would be. And again, I also like some of the underlying trends that I think will favor a country like Switzerland or Ireland as opposed to other countries in Europe like Spain or Italy. 
As far as short-term chart patterns that I'm looking at, and I'll talk specifically here about Switzerland and Vietnam because those are the trades that I made today, I think they're exhibiting chart patterns that are risky, but in my opinion, do have the likelihood of breaking out of the consolidation patterns that they're currently in, and if they don't, they have somewhat of a less limited downside compared to other niche markets that I'm looking at. So in the case of Switzerland, it's struggling right now, trying to get above the convergence of its 50-day and 200-day moving average. Now, I have absolutely no idea of knowing and have no crystal ball to be able to tell me that it's going to be able to break through that resistance. But I'm willing to wager a small amount of my portfolio that it can get past that resistance, and then if it does, it should be able to break out to a higher level. Very similar pattern with VNM, the Vietnam ETF. That's currently at a convergence of the 50 and the 100-day moving average. It hit a bottom, I think, uh, sometime back in January. It's been consolidating for a month or so. And again, I think it has a likelihood of possibly being able to break through that resistance and then go on to move higher. Now, again, in both of these cases, if that fails to happen, I think they have some support levels within about a 10% drop from where they're at. So this is not a risk-free trade. Uh, as nothing is, by the way, uh, but I am taking caution with this. I wanted to get some international exposure, so I'm taking about more or less a 5% position in both of these ETFs. So combined, that would be a 10% international exposure. I am taking this not only with my own portfolio, but also with a select group of some of my clients. And really what that boils down to is I think that this is a reasonable amount of risk, but not something at this point that's appropriate for my entire client base. So I did use quite a bit of discrimination about who I would and wouldn't buy this for. I will say also I put this order in at the end of the day to hit a particular price point. And while I did get all the EWL that I had purchased, I only had a minimum amount of my VNM orders filled. So I'll continue to watch that and see how that plays out. Now, I did mention, in addition to Switzerland and Vietnam, as far as global trades, I also liked the Philippines and Ireland. Well, why did I not invest in the Philippines and Ireland? Well, I had to make a decision because I didn't want to dilute my position down so much where I was taking a 2.5% position in four different stocks. I wanted about a 10% position internationally overall. I wanted at least one company in the European theater. I wanted at least one company in Asia. So this is the way it broke out. It probably could have just as easily gone the other way. I bring this up because I want to point out that this is not an exact science. As you've often heard me say, the stock market is more about human nature than about balance sheets and accounting principles. The markets are far more irrational than they're rational. And when it comes time to making a decision, you have to use the best information you have and then make the decision and run with it. We don't trade in a perfect world the markets aren't exactly the way we want them to be. We're never going to have all the money that we want or all the diversification that we want to achieve. And so you just have to go with what you have. We'll watch these trades. We'll see how they do. I'll be sure and update you if I sell them. I'm comfortable enough with the overall security of these two countries that if things should fall apart, I may end up holding on to them. But we'll really have to wait and see. And as always, I'll reevaluate my positions and my thoughts as I get new data. For example, if some of the political instability that's happening in Thailand, if that starts to boil over and spread into Vietnam, well, then I might change my opinion very rapidly and get out of that position. Right now, I don't anticipate that, 
I'm going to tuck these away and just set them aside and let them be for now my 10% or so exposure to international markets. Now speaking of overall international markets, global trade continues to be extremely weak. The epicenter of that weakness continues to remain around China. I'm going to quote to you right now just a sentence from a Reuters article. China's exports and imports fell more than expected in April. Underlying weak demand at home and abroad was weighing on material stocks as well as copper prices, end quote. So again, we may not be seeing a hard landing in China, but they're certainly not experiencing a rampant boost in their economy. And as a result, material prices, commodity prices, oil prices all continue to be under pressure. That has been and continues to be my biggest concern with not only the United States economy, but the entire global economy. The other thing that I think is a key evident of the slowdown in the global economy is that the market in Japan continues to be sketchy despite the major efforts they've had to devaluate their currency and to stimulate the economy with intervention from the central bank that continues to look like it's not working. Two weeks ago, the Japanese central bank said that they would not further go into negative rates. That's one of the reasons that the U.S. dollar crashed below one of its long-term support levels. Well, as of today, Japan is now signaling that, hey, maybe we made a mistake. We might intervene in our currency. We'll see how that actually plays out. Remember, it's not about what the central banks say. It's what they actually do. Now, as far as oil prices go, oil is my second biggest concern after the Chinese economy. Global stockpiles of oil continue to build up. There's no doubt that we have more oil supply than demand. And while that's a great thing for consumers, it's a bad thing for all the companies and countries that have invested borrowed dollars in ramping up oil output. Now, oil has come off of its high of around $45. As I record this, it's down to about $43. The Canadian wildfires, though, have taken close to a million barrels a day off the market. That's about 1% of global supply, and that's about right where the supply glut is as well. We have somewhere between, say, a 1% and a 1.5% oversupply. So the loss of that Canadian production is a good thing for holding up oil prices, but this is a transitory and a temporary situation. And so I remain believing that we're in a glut and that these oil prices in the mid $45 range can't last, again, unless there's some major supply disruption, a war in the Middle East, something along those lines to take a great deal of oil off the market. But it doesn't look like that's happening. And so I remain believing that we're going to be closer to $30 or $35 oil than to, you know, $45 or $55 a barrel oil. The other thing that was interesting this weekend is that Saudi Arabia replaced their longtime oil minister. They've been in that position since, I believe, the mid-1990s. So as far as Saudi Arabia goes, the younger princes are starting to take over positions of authority. And, you know, it's really a changing of the guard. The market never likes change. I think you'll see reverberations of that changing of the guard in Saudi Arabia trickle through the oil markets. And although I don't want to draw too many parallels to it, this is somewhat similar to the changing of the guard that we've seen take place in China over the last year, 18 months. Now, as far as our markets here in the United States, on the last episode, you heard me give a, a pretty specific rundown of what sectors and industries and specific stocks in the economy were up and which ones were down. Overall, in the last seven to eight weeks, the market has traded in a, in a pretty tight range. It hit a bottom on around February 11th and then worked its way up to around 2100 as we got into the middle part of April. 
And then things began to peter out and roll over, and we've seen prices on the S&P 500 dipping down to that 2050 or 2060 range. And while the market's traded in a range and it's been fairly stable from a 30,000 foot level, we are seeing some extreme volatility within individual sectors of the economy. And that's what I tried to point out in the last episode of the Wealth Setting Podcast. And I believe that's different than what we saw the first half of last year. In 2015, while the markets were very stable from around January till June, it was really only a dozen and then a handful of stocks that were holding the market up. And those sectors stayed pretty constant. What we've seen in the last month or perhaps even two months has been a great deal of sector rotation where from week to week and in some case day to day, the overall index may look stable, but you're seeing specific sectors quickly move in and move out of favor. In the last episode, I mentioned that energy and materials had been doing very well, but they looked to me like they were starting to fade. That has happened. And what's interesting about that is that the players that are starting to replace them are wide and varied. Late last week, we started to see a move back into the really safe type stocks, things like utilities and consumer staples, and then that started to fade. And by the close on Friday, technology stocks were really doing well. And then now we're seeing telecommunication stocks and to some degree the financial stocks falling out of favor. So these U.S. trends seem to be very short-lived. And that, too, was one of the reasons that prompted me to take small positions in foreign markets like Switzerland and Vietnam. Right now, it still looks to me like the S&P 500 is rolling over. It's sitting less than 1% above its 50-day moving average. The Dow Jones is in a similar situation, a little bit more than probably 1%, maybe 1.5% above its 50-day moving average. And then looking over at the more risky indexes, you have the NASDAQ where it's already fallen below its 50-day moving average. And incidentally, it's also below its 200-day moving average. And it's really just resting now on its 100-day moving average. So we're seeing definite weakness in the technology sector. If the NASDAQ doesn't find support at its 100-day moving average, it's likely that it could drop down below, say, 4,600 or so. A similar thing, although not as severe, with the Russell 2000, that's the smaller cap stocks. That index is broken down below its 200-day moving average. It's only about a maybe a percent and a half, 2% above its 50-day moving average. And if it doesn't find support there and drops further down below that 100-day moving average, then you could see that take quite a dip. But I do think that if it loses support where it's at now, it could drop back down to the lower end of that double bottom base that we saw back in September 2015. That's a problem because these small cap stocks continue to struggle. I really think that the only ground that they made up so far this year was because we did see that increase in oil prices. Many of the small cap stocks are related to oil or energy or commodity production. And because of that risk in these small cap stocks, that's why we're seeing still down around 14% from its high that it hit last summer. So that's well in correction territory, certainly leaning towards a full bear market decline. And that's why I remain cautious. The other thing that I want to mention, and this is something that I've been studying for the past couple weeks or so, You heard me mention in previous episodes that the February 11th bottom that we hit, a lot of what seemed to propel the market up was related to oil prices where at that time OPEC talked about capping production. They were going to have a meeting in April and they were going to try and do some restraining of this overall oil glut. At that time, I'd mentioned, hey, this is crazy that the price of oil keeps going up so much because this is just talk and it didn't appear to me 
that they would really follow through on it. Well, you know, we got into April. That meeting did fall apart. They've actually come out since then and talked about increasing production rather than either capping it or deep decreasing it. And at the same time, the price of oil has still stayed up fairly high. That's all seemed very unusual to me. But in any case, the markets definitely started to rise after around mid-February when OPEC was talking about holding current production levels. And then also about that time, we saw some shoring up in the banking stocks uh, pretty much across the board in financial stocks in both the United States and in Europe. And that was important because the European banking sector had really taken a hit. Deutsche Bank had dropped down to a low that hadn't been seen since like 2008. We saw Jamie Dimon here in the U.S., the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. He came in and bought a bunch of his company stock with his own money. That really seemed to shore things up. And then even you know, Deutsche Bank and the other global financial institutions started to really pick up. And again, I think this was related to that increase in the price of oil. But in the case of a lot of the global banks, and in particular Deutsche Bank, well, it didn't last very long. Now, they haven't dipped back down to their February low, but their price has faded quite a bit. So I think whatever that happy talk that occurred in February has worn off. Now, I'm reviewing some old ground here, and I did that to set up my next discussion, which is some things I don't think I mentioned. I, I might have mentioned it in relation to Donald Trump, but I know I didn't mention it in relation to the global central banks and what happened with them at about that same time that we started to see the markets rise. So let me talk about Donald Trump first. And this is what I've been really looking into and studying over the last two weeks, the relationship of Donald Trump and then also the global central banks. And although these two are not necessarily related, I do think that this has had an underlying impact on what helped drive the stock market over the last eight weeks or so, and then perhaps what's making it roll over now. As far as Donald Trump goes, he really started to take a dominant position in early January, and then as these Republican primaries wore on, it became evident that it might be a contested Republican convention, or, you know, Donald Trump might be able to go and win the primary overall on his own. And that, you know, obviously is what has panned out. So I think if you go back into last year, the markets were totally discounting the fact that Donald Trump would be anywhere in the running. Wall Street's money at that time, as far as a Republican candidate, was on either Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio. Now, they could have dealt with a Walker or a Kasich or maybe even a Cruz, but their main two guys were Bush and Rubio. And even though that's where they thought the odds would be for the Republican candidate, when it really comes down to Wall Street money and who they thought was going to be the likely winner, they've been betting all along on Hillary Clinton. It was really six of one and half a dozen of the other. It wouldn't make much of a difference. They were pretty sure that they were going to get the tax reform policy that they wanted, as well as comprehensive immigration reform. None of these people gave Donald Trump the time of day, nor did they think that anybody on the Democratic side, other than perhaps a Joe Biden, would provide any opposition to Hillary. Well, a year later, we see how this has all played out. And what that has really interjected into the overall economy, both here in the United States as well as globally, is a great deal of uncertainty about who could actually be president of the United States. Now, I think I might have mentioned this in previous episodes, but I really didn't dwell on it. Over these last two weeks, though, as Donald Trump has seemed to clinch out the full nomination of the Republican Party, I've gone back, I've looked at the numbers, and it really looks like as he started moving up in the polls, that that was having a positive impact on the market. And as I've looked at the data and thought about it, the relationship that I've come up with is that the reason it was having a positive impact in the polls 
is because it was taking out some of the uncertainty because Wall Street was still thinking that Trump overall was a loser and although he might be the Republican candidate, there'd be no way that he could win against Hillary Clinton in the fall. So that was helping the markets because it was taking out uncertainty because remember in the end, Hillary was their man to begin with. Well now as he's becoming more dominant and as I think I might have mentioned in the last episode, if the gap between Clinton-Trump starts to shrink or if in fact Trump starts to look like he's ahead in national polls, that will interject a great deal of uncertainty in the markets and I think that's going to bring on further volatility and perhaps even new lows. So as far as one thing that had happened earlier in the year, which is having an impact on what we're seeing with the market starting to roll over now, I think the rise of Donald Trump is definitely part of that. It had to do with the market rising in February, as it was thought that he was still a weak clown and was assuring the election of Hillary Clinton. And now as he gains more momentum, perhaps that's causing the market to fade. The other thing that happened towards the end of February, looking back now, you know, with 2020 hindsight, I think it had a great deal to do with the rise in the markets in March and April. And in particular, I think it helped the strength of the price of gold and the weakness in the U.S. dollar. And what that event was, was a meeting of the financial ministers and the central bank governors of the G20 nations that took place in Shanghai, China, right around the end of February. Now with 2020 hindsight, I've gone back, I've researched what happened at that meeting, I've looked at what happened over the ensuing days, and then now how that policy has played out over the last two and a half months. And although I'm obviously speculating on what happened because I wasn't there, what I do think might have occurred was that the central banks and these financial ministers got together, there was some arm twisting that took place probably from the U.S., primarily on countries like Japan and China and the European Union. And the U.S. said that the strength of the dollar was getting too much out of hand. We couldn't have this currency war going on. I believe that the United States must have strong-armed these other countries to get them to hold off as long as possible to devaluating their currencies and perhaps even getting them to hold off all the way until the elections are over in November. Now, again, this is just crazy speculation on my part. I bring these things up because as I look at the normal relationships and correlations between things like the dollar and gold, or things like the U.S. dollar and the 10-year Treasury yield, they just don't seem to be in alignment like you would normally expect. The dollar had gotten far weaker than I think was justified. And then just as irrationally, when last week we saw the U.S. jobs numbers not looking as good as what was originally expected, and the thought that that may be another reason why the Federal Reserve wouldn't raise interest rates, so all that would be a negative on the U.S. dollar, and that's occurring at the same time that the yield on the 10-year Treasury is moving down. And with all that happening over the past couple sessions, the U.S. dollar has seemed to find support and is moving up. That and some other things that just don't seem to add up are causing me to put my emphasis back on that meeting of the G20 towards the end of February. I think there had to be some collusion there about doing all they could to devaluate the dollar and then to keep it as stable as they could as we went into a seasonal slowdown of the summer and then a hotly contested U.S. presidential election. So pure speculation on my part. And then that leads me to what I want to close with which is my total tin hat conspiracy theory about Donald Trump. And so while I think that none of the elites uh, nor anybody on Wall Street ever gave Trump a second thought, they thought he was just a circus clown, and that he was running for president strictly for self-promotional reasons and publicity reasons, 
Well, now he's gotten to the point where the odds are something, you know, close to maybe 50% that he could win this thing. As I mentioned, that interjects a lot of uncertainty into the markets. And while overall, I really am not optimistic or pessimistic one way or the other, I think the bureaucracy and the status quo is so deeply ingrained, it really doesn't matter whether we get Tweedledee or Tweedledum in office. And I think regardless of who wins the White House in November or which way the House of Representatives or the Senate goes, we're still going to end up with larger debts and a bigger government. But that doesn't mean that a wild card like Donald Trump couldn't interject a lot of volatility into the stock market, particularly in the early stages when Wall Street's unsure which direction he's going to go. I think that part's a given, and that's not the tinfoil hat conspiracy. What the tinfoil hat conspiracy theory is, is that if the elites and Wall Street think that they can't control Donald Trump and that he is going to be a loose cannon, well, what if they decide to sabotage his presidency? And this is assuming that he does win and that he takes office in January. None of the elites like him. The Republican leadership doesn't like him. The Democratic leadership doesn't like him. If he gets into office and they feel that he's not going to play ball with the status quo, what if they give him enough rope to hang himself? We know that there are a lot of problems with both the economy and the overall political system, with things like debt, with things like unfunded mandates. I could go on and on, but you get the picture. And I think whether you're on the left or the right, you know that there are some drastic changes that need to take place. But no politician has a political fortitude to make any drastic changes because they all want to get reelected. None of them want to take the blame. And so they consequently just keep kicking the can. No matter how big the problem, they kick the can down the road. They buy more time. They make the problem worse. No one is accountable. No one's responsible. Political leadership goes from one party to the other, back and forth, back and forth. The can keeps getting kicked down the road. The day of reckoning keeps getting postponed. And although that's what I expect them to keep doing, you know, what if they decide to make some drastic changes during the administration of President Trump? That way, if anything fails, if there's a great deal of pain, which most likely there will be, if whatever things that might be politically unpopular but are required to take place to try and put a band-aid around a failing political and economic system, what if all those things that were unthinkable that could never occur because no one wanted to take responsibility, what if the political elites let Donald Trump try and make some of those changes and in fact maybe even voice those changes upon him so that when the pain and suffering is felt, the blame all goes to Donald Trump that way, obviously, the Democrats can avow any affiliation with him, and the Republicans can say, hey, we never really liked him anyways. He wasn't one of us. He's an outsider. Now, I admit that this is just something that I dreamed up. It has no validity to it. It's nothing more than a crazy tinfoil hat theory that I came up with. But when I look at the political landscape, when I look at the reality of things, and when I look at the way the markets are reacting, who knows? Maybe that's the way things will play out.